once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Part of the Christmas gift-giving tradition goes back to the Magi, the wise men who visited Jesus after his birth. In revisiting that story, it's easy to focus on the gifts and not on the purpose for their visit, worshiping the newborn king. Teaching team member Jeff Norris brings us this message entitled, One Thing, which covers Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Even as we heard Kayla pray just a moment ago, um, in this venue about the believers in, in uh, Pakistan that they don't have a, uh, much of a freedom to meet. They meet and some of them are, are with you as a result of meeting in public this morning. And so we mourn for them. We give thanks that we uh, do have the opportunity in this country to freely gather, although that is certainly being encroached upon and seemingly every day and every year we thank you for your protection over us we thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness and we pray that as we do gather this morning that you would meet with us that you would fill our hearts our minds with your spirit that you give us insight and understanding that you would soften hard hearts and that you would take the truth of your word and press it deeply into us give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. We pray and ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1991, there was a great movie that came out, at least in my opinion, it was a great movie. It's not like a lot of the movies today that have to have 18 different explosion scenes to keep us engaged, a lot of dialogue, but it was a great movie. It was called City Slickers. Anybody remember that one? It's good. You had the late, great Jack Palance uh, playing the, the character of Curly Washburn. You had Billy Crystal playing the, the city boy from New York who was getting out to the West to get away, trying to kind of having a midlife crisis, trying to figure out what life is all about. So he and his other friends are trying to, uh, to see what, what, is, what is it that we, we kind of get in the same mundane routine here in the city. Let's get away. So they go away for two weeks out West and they go on this cattle ride become cowboys. And Jack Palance, he, uh, he's the rough, gruff, tough, lifelong cowboy near the end of his life, full of wisdom and insight. Kind of the crescendo of the movie is when um, Mitch, Billy Crystal's character, is riding his horse alongside Curly's as they're driving these cattle and they're just strolling along and they begin to talk and Curly says, all you city slickers are the same. You come out here looking for meaning of life and what is this thing all about? And he says, it's all about this. And Mitch says, it's all about your finger? He says, no, 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 it's all about one thing. And Mitch says, what's the one thing? And Curly says, that's what you've got to go figure out. That stirred within us, I can remember as, as a younger uh, as, as a teenager, when that movie came out, I can remember this got used a lot in sermons, sermon illustrations. And I thought it's probably been a number of years. I'll bring it back up again. But it stirs within us because we all want that, right? 
We all want, just, just give me one thing. In the complexity of this life, would you make it simple, please? Would you just, what's one thing I can focus on? We're going to look at a text this morning where we're going to look at a group of guys who are about one thing. And one of the things that I want to, that I've been praying would come as a result of this, this is not going to be one of these uh, sermons where you say, okay, there were eight points with that. I hope I can remember all those. I'm going to give you one thing to go home with. Because as we open the word, we're going to see from these men that it was about one thing. And I would say this, my prayer and my hope is that as our eyes are open to this one thing, and it's not anything you don't know, it's something you're very familiar with, but as we agree together, this is the one thing, that that one thing changes everything. The one thing can change everything. Turn with me to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, it's printed in your bulletin on the back side of your, of your notes. It will also be available on the screens. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. It says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's from Micah 5.2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. You know, oftentimes in, in scripture we're told about, or we're introduced to different characters. We're introduced to either one character or maybe a series of characters that we're really just not told much about. We're not told their names, we're not told anything about them, or at least very little about them, and then they're gone. And we can speculate, we can, we can kind of guess this is what their significance was, and this is maybe where they came from and what they did, but ultimately we don't know. And I want to be clear, in this passage, we're told very little about these wise men. I'm going to be doing some speculating in a moment, and it's not just sheer conjecture, it's, 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 it comes with research and, and reading commentary and different things of people who are at some level guessing but are who are going off of historical records and insight and trying to connect some dots biblically to say who were these men 
Who were they? Can we, can we know anything about them and why they came? I'll start with this. Three wise men, right? Doesn't say three. We often think that there were three. Why? Because there were three gifts. But it just says wise men came from the east. Could have been two, could have been ten. We don't know. We just know that it was more than one. That these men came from the east and brought gifts. Now, when it says that they came from the east, what does that mean? Where did they come from? How far away did they come? If you go back to read some of the early church fathers, some of these guys, most of these guys agreed that these men probably came from Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq, if you want to get a picture in your mind of where this would be in relation to, to Israel and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. There were other, there were a couple of other, not many, but a few other early church fathers who thought that they came from Persia, which would have been even further east, which would be modern-day Iran. Bottom line is, regardless of where they came from, and I personally think I lean towards Babylon, I'll tell you in just a moment why, but regardless of where they came from or how, uh, what country it was or what kingdom it was, we, we can assume they came a very long distance, at a minimum somewhere around a thousand miles. Now think about this, this is no cars, no airplanes, no trains, no modern transportation, this is more than likely on foot. We always depict these men riding on camels. That may have been the case. The camel was like a Mercedes-Benz in that day. Not everybody had one. These men were wealthier, we think. So maybe they were riding on camels. But the bottom line is, whether camel or by foot, a thousand miles is a long way. And it took them a long time. Now kids, many adults know this already. Kids, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your nativity scenes are wrong. The wise men were not there on the night of Jesus' birth. They were a thousand plus miles away. It took them a long time to get there. Jesus was somewhere between the ages of one and two, more, more than likely, by the time that the wise men got there. He was, a, he was a young child coming out of the baby stage into the toddler stage. Now, what about this king, King Herod? says that the, that the wise men, when they get there, they go to Jerusalem. Why would they go to Jerusalem? Well, that would be the place, right? The, if you're going go to go to Israel, to the place where the Jews live, where the, the followers of God, Israel, if you're going to go there, you're going to go to Jerusalem. That's where the palace would be. So they go to Jerusalem, and they begin asking questions. Where is this king of the Jews? We've got to find him. Herod gets word about this, and it says, that he's deeply troubled. Now, what we know from history is that this is, there's been a number of Herods over the history of, of Israel. Which one is this? This is Herod the Great. And he did not get the name Herod the Great because of his character and his faith. He got the name Herod the Great because he was ruthless. And because he built great cities and great structures in Israel during his 34 years that he reigned. He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Now, he died in 4 B.C., which is interesting because from this passage, we're told that Jesus was born while Herod was still alive. So oftentimes, we think that Jesus was born in 0 A.D., and that's, that's a misnomer. Jesus was born somewhere around 5 or 4 
B.C., just before Herod the Great passed away. Now, King Herod was, was in many ways a psychopath. He was crazy. He was so power hungry. He killed most of his family during those 34 years out of fear that someone would usurp the throne from him. He was not Jewish. He was king of the Jews, but he was not Jewish. He was appointed to that position by the Romans because he was in with them. And so you can imagine when he gets word that there is an actual blood king of the Jews, someone who is actually Jewish, who's been born, all of his psychopath tendencies kick in. i got to kill this one because I can't lose my throne. And so he tells, as crafty and as sly as he is, he tells the wise men, oh, would you go, would you go find out where he is and would you tell me when you find out so that I too can come worship him? But we know from the story that's not what his intentions were. What about the star itself? It's interesting that God would use a star to bring these men all that way. There's a lot of background to this that once you begin peeling back the layers, you go, wow, this is really interesting that God, in his supernatural way that he can, he spoke creation into being, he can certainly put a unique star in the sky, but that he would put it in the sky and call these men who were essentially astrologists. What we can begin to figure out about these men is this, that the word wise men, the, the word that is translated wise men in this translation of the Bible and most of your translations is the Greek word magos. And the Latin word for that is one that you're familiar with. It's magi. And magi is in, lar- in many ways an untranslatable word. It's, it's a word that we can't really uh, fit into English very well. And it's really a word that speaks about a tribe, an ancient tribe of people who were a priestly order. Now don't hear priestly like what you see in Old Testament worship of God priestly. These were, these were people who served in the pagan courts of Babylon and Persia and, and kingdoms like that. And these were magicians, these were sorcerers, they were occultists. And part of their practice of, of what they would do was that they were constantly studying the stars and reading into things as a result of what they were seeing in the skies at night. Now, this is, this is why I lean towards these men probably coming from Babylon. If you go back to the book of Daniel, what we know about the history of God's people, you go back about a half century, I mean a, a half millennia, about five centuries before Jesus was born, and you see that God's people, the southern tribes of Israel called Judah, were dispersed into Babylon in the, in the Babylonian exile. And God places this man named Daniel, who's an Israelite, a follower of the one true God, in a place of prominence within the kingdom of Babylon. And, and Daniel is one who uh, translates dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you go back to Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5, you see that Nebuchadnezzar has had these troubling dreams and he's calling in the courts of the Magi. He's bringing in the sorcerers and he's bringing in the magicians and the soothsayers. That's who these men are. And he's saying, would you tell me what these dreams mean? And no one can interpret the dreams for him. And then Daniel, this Israelite, 
comes in. And he says, this is what your dreams mean. And through this, Daniel becomes, according to the book of Daniel, it says that he becomes the master of the magicians, the master of the magi. So what I think probably happened is that you have Daniel now leading these sorcerers, and he begins to teach them about the God, the one true God of Israel. And he begins to teach them about how there is one coming, this king of the Jews who will come in the line of David, who will rescue God's people, and he will be born in Bethlehem. And they told their kids, who told their kids, who told their kids, because this is a familial priestly order, these magi. So I think what happened is that these men, whoever they were, were already somewhat knowledgeable about the fact that there is a king who is going to come of the Jews, and we're looking for him in the stars because that's their practice. And God, being as cool as he is, and as awesome as he is, calls these men from over a thousand miles away and he puts a unique star off in the east on the horizon and he gives them insight to see this is leading us to Israel could this be the time and so they go with expectation and anticipation what we see about the star is though there's there's there seems to be Indication within the passage here that the star that they followed from a long distance away was one that was way off in the distance. It was on the horizon. It was a bright star. And they were aware by the leading of God in them that this is a star leading them to the king of the Jews. But once they get to Jerusalem, it kind of goes away. Because if you look again in verse 9, it says this. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, behold there means, that, that word means like, and it began to happen. Or look quickly. So it it gives indication that suddenly the star is back. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now it's a different manifestation of the star. Now it was a distant star off in the east on the horizon. Now it's some type of supernatural star that God has designed that actually rests right over the house in Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, and it says that they rejoiced with exceeding joy. They were thrilled to meet Jesus. Here's the question, though. That was a lot of information. If you tune me out, this is where I'm asking you to come back in. Why did they come? Why why would God do this from so far? Couldn't he have just gotten somebody up the road? Couldn't he just gotten someone in Jerusalem and said, hey, go down to Bethlehem and make a big deal about Jesus? Why these men from so far? I'll give you a few reasons. The first is this. These men came to foreshadow a new and greater covenant. If you were to read Matthew chapter 1, it's a genealogy. It's a genealogy that ultimately lands us at the feet of Jesus. It's an interesting way for Matthew to start his book about Jesus. 
He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He starts with showing to his Jewish readers this king, Jesus, is in the proper line of David. The king that you've been waiting on, the king that you have been expecting and longing for, this is him. And let me show you by who his fathers were. And so the Jews, by reading the first chapter of Matthew, are becoming convinced this is the one. And so then he says, okay, now you're understanding the genealogy of how this this king in the line of David is coming. And so here he is. Let me tell you his story of how he was born. And what does God do? He opens the story with bringing in pagans, Gentiles, non-Jewish people from a thousand miles away to be the ones who come and make a big deal about him. Ultimately, God is saying this, is he's saying this covenant that I've had with you that you think has been just about you, I'm going to show you from the very first few months and years of Jesus' life that this is about a bigger covenant that's going to blow your mind. That my heart has been, always has been, and always will be about the nations, about all peoples, about Jew and Gentile. And so these men are coming, led by the Lord, to foreshadow a greater kingdom, a greater covenant. Secondly, they came to bring their treasures. I love that that the word, that at least in the ESV, which is the translation I'm using, is the translated word is treasures instead of gifts. They brought their treasures And I think that's a better word to use because it gets at the heart of what this was for them. These gifts that they brought, they were were their treasures. They were were so valuable to them. So we know the gifts. You've heard them before. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What were the significance of these gifts? Gold was a gift that was very prominent in that day for kings, for royalty. The temple was laden with gold, the temple of Solomon. Solomon. Most of Solomon and the kings were, were clothed in, in gold, so to speak, with necklaces and rings and all these kind of things. But it was common in that day, just as it is today, that those who are wealthy and especially those who are w- with royalty would receive gold. So that one makes a lot of sense. That If this is the king of the Jews, we're going to bring him gold. And so they bring gold for the king. That one's easy. But think about the other two. Frankincense. Frankincense translates, literally means pure incense. Incense was what was used in the temple. It was what was used as worship, in the process of worship where you would burn incense and it would let off a pleasing aroma. But the bigger thing is this, is that the, as the smoke went to the sky, they, it signified these are the prayers of God's people rising to God. In other words, this was a gift for God. Incense connected people to God, at least symbolically. So you've got gold, a gift for a king. You've got frankincense, a gift for God. And then you've got myrrh. And myrrh was a gift that signified, this is, this is for someone who is human, mortality. Because myrrh was often used to make things smell better. Myrrh was, was often used by the young ladies of the time as, as a sort of perfume to make themselves smell more desirable. It was used in marriage ceremonies to kind of bring a nice aroma to the air. 
It's also used prominently in burial services to prepare the body for, for burial. Myrrh, to me, is the most interesting one because it is such a gift of another way of foreshadowing. If you read on in the book of Matthew, you get to the, to the point in the story of Jesus where our hope lies. Where we hang our hat on the cross. And we say, Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross is, is our very hope for standing before God. It is the very reason we can stand before him and say, I can be in your presence, not because of anything that I have done, but because of the full and complete finished work of Jesus upon the cross, taking the wrath of God in my place. But when Jesus first got on the cross, he was offered, Matthew tells us that he was offered a drink of bitter wine mixed with, some of your translations say gall, but, but that word there is myrrh. So myrrh was used also as an anesthetic, a painkiller. To be given to those who are crucified to say, look, this is about to be horrific, it already is for you, will be, this is the, the token mercy of the Romans to say, we'll give you this just slight anesthetic. It'd be like hanging on the cross and getting one Advil. But even still, do you know what Jesus did? Jesus said no, and he refused the drink as if to say, I want to feel every bit of this. As the sin of my people is poured upon my shoulders. I don't want that to be numbed in any way. I want to feel the full and complete wrath of God in their place as their substitute. And so when these men came from afar and one of their gifts was myrrh, us on this, we being on this side of the story know that myrrh played a significant role in the humanity of Jesus. Gold, a gift for a king. Frankincense, a gift for a God. Myrrh, a gift for a human. I wonder if these men knew when they brought these gifts, I suspect they didn't, that they were bringing these gifts to the God-man, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, who would be the eternal king. I suspect that they probably just thought, hey, let's give the best treasures we can possibly give. And how cool it is that God worked it out the way that he did. But lastly, why did they come? Yeah, they came to bring treasures, and yes, whether they realized it or not, they came to represent a whole new, bigger covenant. But look what the text says. Look at verse 2. They came for a very specific reason. Verse 2 says this. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They came to worship him. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now this is, this is not like they walk into the house and there's a moment, there's a, we don't get any indication here that there's this kind of mingling around and let's talk with Mary and Joseph and, oh, you guys, man, this, this house is so nice. It looks so good. Now, where is Jesus? Oh, there he is. Oh, he's so cute. Look at him. There's none of that going on. It is they walk into the house. They see Mary and Joseph prostrate on the ground. They are in worship. They are falling down before the king of the universe, worshiping him. And then what did they do? Stuck around for food, hung out for a little while, 
According to the text, they went home. They came, they worshiped, they gave their treasures, they went home. I, listen, I'm just going to be honest. If I traveled over a thousand miles on foot, I'm probably going to hang out for a little while. And I'm probably going to say something like, hey, uh, Mary, Joseph, listen, when he grows up, would you remind him that we came? And, that, you know, would you like, you know, when he's king and ruling, maybe he can give us a house or, you know, just remember us. None of that. They came to worship the king. That's it. That's it. One thing. What's, what's your one thing? And, and I'm not asking, I don't want some theoretical answer as you process in your mind. And, and it's not, I'm not asking for your nice Sunday school answer. We know we're all supposed to say Jesus is my one thing. I mean, like, when, when, when you observe your life, or if someone else were to observe your life, and, and what is your one thing? What is it that most consumes your worship, if you will, by, by your time, by your leisure, by your worry, by your fears? As your life is expressed inwardly and outwardly, as you get honest with yourself, as I get honest with myself, what is the one thing? For many of us, for me, it's, it's not just one thing, it's a lot of things. What we see is the, from the example of these men is we see that these were men who were focused on one thing and they brought their treasures to him and they said essentially, at the feet of the value of you, my king, my treasures are nothing. I give them to you because they are of, uh, of little value to your infinite value. It's okay, certainly, to have treasures. One of my treasures, as I was processing through this, is my children. They encompass so much of my time, so much of my worry, so much of my fears, so much of my leisure. And that's a good thing. That's okay. I want to be a good dad. But they can become the place where they become the thing, the one thing. And this worship of Jesus is not the one thing. One last thing I want to point out to you. Did you notice, I found this really interesting. Did you notice that when the wise men came to Jerusalem and they inquired about this king of the Jews, that there were a lot of religious people that knew? There were a ton, like Herod gets worried and he, he calls together all the chief priests and the scribes. Which probably meant the Sanhedrin, which was like the, uh, um, the, the ultimate court, the supreme court, ultimate court, we call it that, right? The supreme court of the Jews. It was the leaders, the religious people. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, when, when he comes, it'll be in, in Bethlehem. And these wise men assuredly said, well, that's who we're here for because we saw the star. And they said, well, it's Bethlehem. And none of them went. They were so wrapped up in their religious duties and religious uh, religiosity that they missed the king who was born under their, under their noses. And I go, oh, is that not me? I struggle with this greatly. I am paid to be religious. I'm paid to talk about God. 
I'm paid to sit with people over lunch and over breakfast and explain things in the scriptures to them and the gospel and talk about God. I'm paid to sit on a stage and talk to you about God. This is what I do. And yet, in the midst of all my religiosity and all the things that I know how to say the right things, I can miss Jesus. And I do often. Because I let all these other many things, even good religious things, take the place of the one thing. To fall on my face and worship the king. How would our lives be different if that was our one thing all the time? If what pervaded our lives in every arena, at all times, in every way, that falling on our face in worship of Jesus, obviously not, we can't walk around falling on our face theoretically, but that, that, the position of our hearts is that we are falling on our face and we are saying, Jesus, you are of infinite value. You are the one thing and I bring you my treasures because you are the treasure. How would the world around us look different if the church actually lived this out? How much more readily would the kingdom of God come in and through us if every single one of us, just in this church, much less the church globally, but just this church, said, I am going to devote my life by the power of the Spirit within me to the one thing. Because I am convinced that that one thing changes everything I want us to sing to that end I want us to sing a song that for me has meant a great deal over the years first started singing this song when I was in college when I first started walking with Jesus when he just waylaid me with his love we used to sing this all the time in our worship settings and so I asked the the worship team. I said, can we sing this? And I want us in all venues to sing this and to simply express to God the very words of this text. We fall down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Let me pray and we'll sing that together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this story of the wise men. That you would lead these men, obscure as they were, as unlikely as they were to be ones coming to worship Jesus. That you would help us see in their story, our story. You would help us see that, that what they were most consumed with, the worship of this King Jesus, that, that that would be the cry of our hearts. Oh Lord, would you make that the cry of our hearts, that that would be our one thing. We ask you that. We plead for that. Have your way with us, O oh God, that that would be true. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. 
Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.